The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. This is Jordan Grace, and you're listening to the Social Suplex Podcast Network. BWB, this is One Nation Radio. You better get it right. Rich Ladder, James Boyd came to give him life. The blackest wrestling podcast has come to kick all ass and drop it six feet if they kick it trash. Word, let me welcome y'all to something different. And if you dig it, man, you should let some friends listen. We be getting it in this on the regular, dude. Ravish and flow, but this shit rule. See, James don't rap, so I had to break it down. The whole network, man, we coming for the crown. Raps in the columns, I keep them both covered making the beats too, so the listeners can bump it, hit us with the rating yeah, I'm saying it's a five, before you hit it, talk, bob your head side to side it's One Nation Radio, and this is the beginning, it's Rich, and I'm here with James, it's time to listen to One Nation the power of this is Mike Sempervivi from WrestlingObserver.com. Check me out on Wrestling Observer Live every day. And also check out your boys, Rich and James, on One Nation Radio. Uh, this is Kenny Omega. We're listening to One Nation Radio. Check it out, guys. These guys know what's up. Big Kenny Omega fans. That's all it counts to me. Welcome to the July 29th edition of One Nation Radio, a special edition. Who am I kidding? They're all special editions. This is um, Rich, and I am joined today by James Boyd. You know, this is crazy. I've got James back in the saddle. And he goes silent. Great. <laughs> oh, sorry. I had to unmute for a second. My bad. I, you know, trigger button is is uh, is, is a slippery. Anyway, so uh, what's going on, man? Not much, man. And today we are joined by the one, the only Doctor Chad Matthews of LordsOfPain.net and LOP Radio. What's going on, Chad? Not much, man. Just happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting with you guys. Yes, man. And and Chad, it, the reason we have Chad on the show, uh, aside from that, he's one of our good buddies, is Chad, you know, as you guys have been hearing over the past like month or so, I've been dropping references to it. He has a book called The Greatest Matches and Rivalries of the WrestleMania Era that is due for release soon. What was the date on that, Chad? This coming Wednesday, August the 1st. Awesome. Yeah, and if you guys haven't checked uh, any of Chad's books out thus far, um, I believe he has one about uh, the Starcade versus WrestleMania era, as well as the uh, WrestleMania era, ranking the top 90 uh, superstars of the WrestleMania era. He has three versions of that. And then this is the newest one that he has released. Am I missing anything? No, that'll pretty much do it, man. I think the two main ones are the, the, the WrestleMania era, the Book of Sports Entertainment, and, and then this new one, the, the greatest matches and rivalries. Once I wrapped up writing the WrestleMania era several years ago, I immediately wondered what's my next project, and that's what I settled on, and I have thoroughly enjoyed putting the time in these last five years to get it ready, and the time has finally come to release it. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, man, I... Um me and uh, James I believe maybe a couple others have, have gotten like advanced copies of the book I have not read the whole thing yet but I've read you know around a lot of it I know what the um, you know the tone of it is and I've been reading Chad's stuff for you know three or four years now we first connected back when um, well, I believe we were writing on what culture if I'm not mistaken correct and um, correct. yeah you know and, and they let us get away so <laughs> um, yeah man so like I, I've heard you like call this one like your magnum opus like what makes it like so well when i first became a part of the quote-unquote internet wrestling community if you will uh the one of the things that i was drawn to by wade keller especially over on pw torch was star ratings i mean i found that fascinating that there were people who actually put that much thought into pro wrestling matches that they wanted to actually rank and file them in a way that like like they do at the movies where you where you get three and four star ratings i thought that was fascinating so you know all the way back in 2002 when i first joined the community that's what i dove into most i found that it was fun to read about the backstage stuff but more than anything i found it to be so much fun to go back and watch 
all the matches that I'd watched as a kid through that analytical lens and to really put that that critical spin on it. So really for the last 15, 16 years, that has been the most fun thing about covering wrestling is watching these old matches, watching all the new matches and actually putting them in some sort of classic order historically. So to me, there was no project, even though after reading the book of basketball, which I've talked to you guys about before, it was the inspiration for my original book, Ranking the Wrestlers. That was great. But once I started diving into actually ranking the matches and rivalries, that's where I felt like, okay, this is this is the most in my wheelhouse thing I could possibly write a book about. So I had a great time kind of going through all that. And, and I look at it as my masterpiece, my magnum opus, if you will, because this is the project I felt like I would have more fun writing about and ranking and reading and going through the whole process of it than anything else I could possibly do. I've always liked, and that's what got me over to what culture in the first place is, you know, they recruited me because of, of all the historical lists I would make, of mostly about matches. Mm-hmm. So this was the, the logical next book to write. And, and, and quite frankly, I mean, it was a real joy to do it. I mean, even more so than the original book. Because, I mean, the original book was basically conceptualized, studied, and written within two years. This has taken me five and like the the concept that you like kind of birthed out of that the name of it is objective subjectivity and that's like a subject and idea that you know not only i'm passionate about i believe james is 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 as well like and basically what that essentially breaks down to if you guys haven't ever heard of that like we kind of believe like it's not you know simple enough it's not a simple enough concept to say whether something was good or bad it's like i want to know how good is it and how bad is it essentially like how did you kind of develop that in incorporating that with this book well after studying anything for 15 years i think you're going to get some sort of idea as to (laughs) what separates something that's average what separates something average from good what separates something good from great and what separates something great from absolutely phenomenal all-time great so for me it was just picking it apart taking something like a a rock versus austin match from wrestlemania 17 and you know pretty much unanimously across the board you've got a general sense that that's an all-time classic match but why so you break it down you look at it piece by piece you look at the fact that there were so many layers to the storytelling you look at the fact that they went through an, an entire 30-minute affair with very little uh, hiccups within the story they were trying to tell, so no, nothing was really botched, per se. Um, you talk about the drama, the emotion, the crowd reaction, the near falls, all of those things combined, and you just break it down element by element, and, and you realize that, okay, just like in, in the example I use in the opening, the introduction of the book, is it's like college football rankings. Like That's not an exact science but it's also not totally subjective. You can't look at, you know, the Alabama Crimson Tide and say that they're the exact same team as Jacksonville State just because they're both football. It's not subjective. <laughs> these guys are awesome and these guys are good, but not that good. That's something that if you study the game, you can follow along with and start to determine this is what separates these guys intangibly from being incredibly great versus these guys from being just good enough to play college football so i've always felt wrestling was was something that you could break down that way too i'll take that to my grave and i'll argue anybody who wants to argue it i think that there is the the idea that wrestling is so subjective period end of sentence and that's it that you you can't even have these conversations because they're quote unquote so subjective has never sat well with me and i don't agree with it so for me, it was just about picking apart the elements and jotting them down, revising them over and over again, and, and, and figuring it out from there. James, you want to jump in? So, yeah. So one thing I noticed, Chad, in your book, and you, you, you were very upfront about it, and it was actually in, in, um, mentioned in your, um, in your criteria for what you're using for judgment. You mentioned um, not doing the area the era of the network and how, um, you know, buy rates don't matter. So it's harder to be able to kind of tell what what is the draw and what is, you know, what is building financially for the company. 
um, as far as angles and rivalries and that sort of thing. How hard was it for you to come? Um, how hard was it for you to uh, be able to factor in the fact that you kind of don't have that in comparison to previous generations for the stuff since 2014? I thought it was very challenging, frankly. I think at this point, when the whole network era started to develop further was right in the midst of when this book was being um, not just I guess it was it was out of the concept phase I mean I was well into having studied all of these matches dating back to about 1983 I was up till about 2015 when it really started to become apparent that okay this whole network thing is drastically different than anything that we had seen before so um it took me a lot of thought and study to basically determine that what I ended up having to do with the absence of being able to, you know, look at something like a buy rate was one thing that had carried over into the network era from the pay-per-view era was event prestige, if you will. So WrestleMania is still WrestleMania. SummerSlam is still SummerSlam. So if you're going to actually try to come up with a dichotomy between them, you may not be able to carry over the buy rates from era to era, but one thing that has been maintained that did allow some separation is that WWE still treats events like SummerSlam, WrestleMania, um, Royal Rumble especially, as a cut above everything else. So that, that ended up being what I landed on as the way to compare something like Daniel Bryan and Bray Wyatt Actually, that doesn't that doesn't apply because I guess that's still it just it yeah. just missed it just, just missed yeah. the cut. But something like uh, um, something like AJ Styles and John Cena, you know, right against something from twenty years ago is you know the the fact that AJ Styles and John Cena, two of their three singles pay per view matches took place at massive events, and you could still factor in things like the fact that the Royal Rumble in 2017 that housed their match of the year last year took place in front of 50,000 people. So, I mean, that type of aspect still carried over, even if the buy rate data that you made it easier to compare something between 2001 and 2010, in the absence of that, you still had the prestige and you still had the, the, the dynamic event of something like a Royal Rumble where you could add in a, a few, um, you know, 10,000, 20,000 more people in an event like Royal Rumble 2017. What um what what kind of research like went into these chapters? Like, you know, was it just as simple as, hey, I'm just going to sit and watch, you know, this match until, you know, I pretty much bleed myself of of every, every type of analysis, like in some cases <laughs> that, you know, some of this stuff was like 20 or 30 years ago and you know, as much as, you know, we have been watching wrestling forever it's kind of hard to put yourself back in that that moment like was it easy for you to like take yourself back to these moments like to put them each in the right context i've always found it to be uh, a, a worthwhile exercise to try um i think i've done all right with it over the years i mean i've, I've been at this type of comparison long enough to be able to as as much as it's possible to for instance something like Greg Valentine versus Roddy Piper to, to put yourself back in 1983 and try to mentally connect with it on the level that it was supposed to connect with back then. Um, so, I mean, in, in that sense, it's, it's challenging, certainly, but I didn't think that it was impossible, especially with a match like that. A lot of the stuff that made the cut in this book from that era are things that watch as totally different than what we see today. Like, nothing that you'll see today looks anything like Greg Valentine versus Roddy Piper in a dog collar match. <laughs> Nothing that we see today looks anything like Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard in a steel cage I quit match. Those matches, I think that they allow you to get invested in them, even if you don't fully immerse yourself as if it's 1983 or 1985, just because of how unique they are. They, When you watch them as compared to, I remember one day, this was like in 2016, um, my my wife and my kids went to visit my wife's parents. And that weekend, I mean, I just binged a ton of different matches. And that was in the phase of the project where I'd gotten out of ranking everything against its year. So, for instance, ranking things like um, uh, Edge and John Cena in 2006 and their, and their TLC match against 
the Edge and Foley hardcore match from that year's WrestleMania. So getting out of that phase and really putting matches like Edge and Cena from that TLC match up against Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. So that was one of the ones that stuck out at me. There were four matches I watched that it consecutively, and I took copious notes about them. It was Foley and Orton from 2004, Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard, Edge and Cena, and then the 92 War Games match. And I basically just poured over them and, and picked them apart and looked at, all right, well, I mean, regardless of what era these came from, you know, what's the things, what intangibly about War Games 92 stood out? And there were like 10 things that stood out about that that were totally different than what you saw in those other three matches. But at the end of the day, when I was comparing them head to head, things like Edge versus Cena actually got a little bit of a nod ahead of those because not only did you have a lot of the innovation from that, that some of those matches earlier on uh, featured, but you also had um, some of the dynamics of, of the rivalry and uh, playing out in a more modern way that I thought stood out in a more fluid manner. So, I mean, there were certain aspects like that that stood out when comparing all that. Um, but, yeah, and I think I've kind of gone off on a little bit of tangent and lost my train of thought as to what your original <laughs> question was, so my apologies. Oh, no, you're all good, man. Um, yeah, man, like, I like was thinking you know the only thing that is holding a lot of this stuff together um like you mentioned all those those street fights and everything is the only commonality is that they're all street fights so you just have to find a way to kind of you know bring them uh in their own proper context but uh james you got any thoughts on that yeah um so as i was going through this book and just like just even going through the stuff, uh, the stuff that I really hit on, which was the since 2011 stuff to now, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how much. I guess, I guess my question is, do you think you could have done this book if you had not have done, um, have you had, had this not been specifically you as a person that has done the greatest superstars of. Uh, the great or the greatest wrestlers of the WrestleMania era. When you've gone through and dissected all these guys, so you do know by going through their careers who their main rivals are, what was important to, as a guiding line, to, as a guiding or starting spot to take you to where you are now with this book. Do you think you could have done this without that? Probably not as easily. Certainly, the writing that original book gave me a lot of context to some of the things that it, that ended up being the focal points and rivalries that I look back on from a long, long time ago. Uh, I think the thing about the WrestleMania era, the original book that I wrote, was um, I, I basically went through and relived everything from 1983 on, anything I could get my hands on. And that was, it'd be a lot easier to do now. I'd say another advantage this time around was the, the network in existence before oh, the yeah. original original <laughs> book was watching grainy YouTube videos mostly to catch up on this stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think what, that original book absolutely helped make it a little easier to um, have a starting point because I had this long, long, long list of matches that I'd watched and kept notes about from that original book that I could refer back to, that I could go back when I was watching something like the Rock and Roll Express versus uh, versus the Andersons at Starcade 86. I mean, I took a lot of notes about that because it'd been so many years since I'd seen it. So I could go back and review that pick it apart, look at some of the details I'd noticed then, add them in with the details I'd noticed now since I was comparing it to so many other things and had been essentially just immersing myself in in great matches for, for so many years. So absolutely, it was helpful. I think one of the coolest things about the book is like how you, when people see like a list, right? It's just like, all right, you know, obviously there's a level of opinion that has gone into it, but you basically have created this system that I love for you to like share with us because it, it literally breaks down to numbers uh, on each of those. Like, could you let everyone know essentially like, and I don't know if this w was the main scale. Did you stick to it like 100% or not? Well, I'll just break it down for you. Basically how it originally started, which was uh, the idea came to me right after SummerSlam 2013. And if you remember, SummerSlam 2013 has got these two incredible matches right on the same card. CM Punk and Brock Lesnar is in uh, basically the end of the, se the second hour. 
and then the main event Daniel Bryan versus John Cena like oh wow I mean I personally right off the bat I thought how am I going to at the end of this year decide between these two matches for match of the year because they were both incredible in their own way so basically what I did was I said all right let's look at every possible detail right offhand that I can come up with to compare these two all right which one was more historic check which one was the uh, best pure match like just in terms of all the basic things that go into a wrestling match from the execution of the moves to the um, to, to the psychology involved and how deep did that does psychology go to the uh, the ability of, of each wrestler to sell what was going on in the ring and I broke it down that way and then I went down further and was looking at is there any moment even just a momentary blip on the radar where something didn't go right and if that was the case, then I would mark that down and dock it if it was... I mean, I even broke it down to if it's a full-on botch, like if this guy clearly was supposed to do something else in this moment, then <laughs> that's minus one. But if it was just a tiny little slip-up, then that's minus one-half. And I basically took the classic five-star rating scale and gave him a score on a scale of one to five for each of those. Five, four, three, five, four, three, five, four, three, five, four, three, all the way down for about 13 different elements that also included how good was the climax? Did the climax make sense? Did the climax inspire a great crowd reaction? Did the climax fit the story? What was the crowd reaction like? Was the crowd going bananas? Was the crowd, you know, into it but not going bananas? Was the crowd sort of kind of into it? Was the crowd lukewarm? Um, the, the strength of the story that led up to the match, all of those things were put into the blender, and that was initially what set the tone, was just looking at all ma all the best matches, generally agreed upon best matches from any given year, and then putting them against each other and seeing what it scored. And it, it's interesting when you follow that, and let's see if I can pull up an example real quick. I don't have my notebook with I've me. I've got one for you. I've got one for you. I'll use the one that you use in your book. You said, for example, Ricky Steamboat versus Ric Flair's highest score among the three all-timers was 50.0 in 1989 compared to 51.5 for the Triple H versus Mick Foley street fight at Madison Square Garden in 2000. The process was repeated for both with the best of each major event and stipulation match, the data for which was then blended with the year-to-year -year scores for greater clarity on the initial rankings. So let me break that down further. So let's use that as an example. So you've got what I found interesting about this scoring system is it very easily actually separated the stuff that generally tends to be thought of as five star mm -hmm. from the stuff that was generally tended to be thought of as like four star. So, for instance, in the honorable mentions, it's meant that one of the one of the matches that's discussed is Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero for the United States Championship. The, the one that crowned the first U.S. champion in the WWE lineage of that title. Right. I think if I don't, if I if I recall correctly, that ended up scoring like right around a 37-38. So if you think about that match, it's generally regarded to be a four-star match. Steamboat and Savage, Steamboat and Flair, both generally tended to be regarded as five-star matches. So you end up with this pretty substantial dichotomy of this stuff that had mostly been regarded as being great but not all-time great didn't score anywhere close using this formula to the stuff generally regarded as classic in that all-time sense so i thought that was interesting it helped make it very easy to separate everything that's how the year-to-year -year stuff broke down it was basically all right i'm going to take using 01 for an example i'm going to take the jericho benoit ladder match the three stages of hell match between triple h and austin the Rock Austin match, TLC2, um, and just on down the line, because there were a lot of great matches in 2001. It was one of the heaviest years of study. And something like Triple H and Austin scored incredibly well, even though it was on a crap pay-per-view by comparison to WrestleMania, the Rumble, SummerSlam, etc. Whereas something like Angle and Austin didn't actually score that well, even though it took place at a more prestigious event. So there was a lot of stuff like that that I found to be really interesting as I went through the process. Year by year, I went through all that, and then I took those matches that scored the best and started putting them head-to-head -head against each other. So it was those initial scores 
that gave me some sort of a framework to build the rest of the book's spine off of, if you will. And then year to year, breaking it out from there into the head-to-head type rankings, then you start looking at stuff that may not have scored that well. Like Edge versus Matt Hardy is not something that scored very well in the year-to-year rankings against its peers from 2005. But you start putting it head-to-head against things from 1983 or, or 2010, all of a sudden Edge versus Matt Hardy shooting up the rankings just based on the fact that if you watch it head-to-head, man, am I having a blast watching this? Yes, but it's also just the storytelling in this match is better. The psychology of this match is more sound. The execution's just as good, if not better. They're intangible qualities, like the fact that Lita's on the outside making your presence felt, gets involved in the ring, and you've got that added aspect of the Edge-Hardy-Cage match. It's not just about what's going on in the ring, but it's what's going on outside that works its way into the ring. The crowd reaction's great. I mean, it's just all of a sudden you start comparing those types of things head-to-head, and there's some very intriguing things that started to be revealed. To me, it was like your version of the 42 Club that Simmons wrote about in his, his book. Like Hell when, yeah. when they would add up the points, rebounds, assists, and if it's over forty-two, you can see that's like a legendary performance um, that someone had did, and you know, kind of like the forty-two club slash the wine cellar, essentially. Absolutely, and I want to make something very clear, and, and it's that you know, it. I've seen a lot of. I've been around for a long time, reading different columns from a bunch of different people, and I've seen people go through a process where they create a numerical scale but the results it spits out don't make any sense like I remember <laughs> years ago we had a guy on LOP who created a top 100 wrestlers of all time list oh, and God. his mathematical formula spit out Brock Lesnar as number 99 and the guy ahead of him was like big boss man I'm like okay if you're creating a numerical system you've got to rectify the fact that that doesn't make sense you know you have to you have to be able to step back and look at it and say, all right, that's a result that doesn't make sense. And what I liked about what I came up with was largely I didn't have anything on there that didn't make sense. You know, everything seemed to make pretty good sense. Anything that was a, a good match ended up not making the cut because it was just a good match. And it wasn't something that, that had any sort of intangible quality that would boost it and make me take a second look at it. So the raw scores ended up putting together a laundry list of things that if we sat down, the three of us, and just spent three hours chit-chatting about it, we would probably come up with something very similar to what this scoring system created. The nice thing about the scoring system was that it created separation. So if we were going to talk about Cactus Jack and Triple H's street fight, but we had no context around how to compare it to and rank and file it against something like um, Ultimate Warrior versus Hogan from WrestleMania Six then we'd just be sitting there talking about, well, we liked it more, or this story <laughs> watches better now. But if you actually have a scoring system, then you have, okay, well, all right, Hogan and Warrior scores incredibly well, but so does Triple H, and and, and, and so does Triple H and, um, Mick and, Foley. and Foley. So yep. then they, those two actually were great examples because they scored very close to each other, but if you watch them head-to-head, there's no comparison. Yeah. You watch them head-to-head putting all those other things I talked about earlier, the psychology, selling, execution, and all that. Put them head-to-head, then the, the comparison, there, there really isn't one. Triple H and, and Foley is a far superior match. They score very similarly, which gives you a dichotomy to work from, but then you start looking at it closer and closer, and that's really what the last, you know, two out of the last three years were spent doing is just making sure, okay, does that make sense? And if that doesn't make sense, to move it back. The only exception was more modern stuff. AJ Styles versus John Cena, I think, is something that really is going to have to stand the test of time before it can justify fully the ranking that, that I originally gave it, which was closer to the top 25 to 30 rather than where it landed at closer to top 40. And I think yeah, that's a, that's a good way to, to compensate for time too. Like you know, obviously, if you watch a match from 1990, it's not going to be what um, it is in 2017 or even the year 2000 by that that time. So, and James, you had something you wanted to jump in on? Yeah, actually, that was actually a um, AJ and, and Cena actually was one that stuck out to me because I was, as I said, I was mostly focused on um, when I originally since I haven't had a chance to get through all of the book. Um, the part that got the part that kind of surprised me was, and I was a pleasant surprise, was actually seeing AJ and and Cena like in front of say Seth and and Ambrose. And I was like, huh, 
Like, okay. Like, I mean, they only did, you know, the three matches, but, like, these matches are monumental matches in the history of modern WWE. And they knocked that apart both times. Those are certifiable classics. So, I mean, I was talking about this maybe the other day with, um, with Rich and a few other people. Like, What's the best match since since AJ um, and, and Cena at Royal Rumble uh, 2017 in WWE? What is it? It's, it? It gets real rough. Yeah, like it might be like the, it, 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 for all we know, this might be like the, the last dinosaur before before the asteroid comes in and, and crashes the planet. For all we know, um, but so I mean, we were talking about such a uh, and I, we were talking about all the massive undertaking that this book has been for as far as researching and be able to you know um modulate to where you, you know you felt comfortable with where the rate the rate ranking set um i remember reading part of the the undertaker versus brock lesnar feud and you said on your initial rating you had it somewhere in the i think the early 90s and then after um reappraising it because of the, you know there's two legs of it there's two separate legs because of the 2015 stuff that it moved into the 60s. Um, were there any other, or best better way to ask you is, what was the most surprising jump for you in a positive direction or negative direction when you from your initial rankings to the book? The most negative one, I mean, one I absolutely would have thought was going to be featured deep into the book when I started the process was Shawn Michaels and Mankind. I would have bet my my bottom Josh loves that, that match. That, that that would have been one that I would have absolutely had in the top 50. But when I started watching it head to head and started looking at the fact that, you know, there's no conclusive victor, it just sort of ends with a bunch of schmoz stuff. Everything before that's tremendous. There's a couple of moments in there that really aren't that fluid. I mean, it doesn't matter. If you're if you're going to watch a match to have fun, that still ranks right up there amongst the matches you'd absolutely watch. There wouldn't be 50 choices you'd make before that one. But it moved down, and it moved down because it did not have a very good score when I started the process, as great as it was. The fact that it took place with virtually no buildup, the fact that yeah. it took place on, your house. Uh, on an in-your-house show, the fact that there was no finish, the fact that the crowd half the time was chanting for ecw and not for Shawn michaels or mankind i mean there's some incredible innovation in there hijacking again when you're addressing the totality of a match and and asking all right all right i've laid down this criteria so does it hold up to scrutiny and and even in the head-to-head phase like okay well this is going to be something that head-to-head it'll jump up even though it didn't score very well it's going to jump up, but it never did. It ended up, there always was something. Every time I put it against something, thinking, all right, because I remember one match I put it against, knowing it was going to win. I mean, I knew it was going to win, was Eddie Guerrero and Brock Lesnar, because I don't even think Eddie Guerrero and Brock Lesnar is that great. I really Mm -hmm. don't. I don't think it's a match that's held up that well. But nevertheless, putting those two head-to-head and all the criteria I laid forth, Brock and Eddie still won. Um, Wow. So, I mean, when I put it head-to-head, it just kept falling back. So that was one on the now the downside. The plus side, absolutely the Shield and the Wyatt family in 2014. Um, started out as a match in the 80s, and you saw how far it jumped up. I mean, it, it jumped up quite a bit. And every time, I swear to God, everybody listening to this, if you go back and you watch the Shield and the Wyatts against anything else that's happened in the last 35 years. It'll be right the Shield there. and Wyatts holds up incredibly yeah. well. So it didn't score that well because 2014, I thought, was a strong year for big-time candidates. Um, but that match shot up. I mean, it was. It, I think its raw score was right around like 43. So that doesn't – I mean, you compare that to what we were talking about earlier with Triple H and Foley, Steamboat and Flair – HBK Taker, those types of matches that score well above 50. Something that scores 43 doesn't seem like it's going to be able to uh, hold up against something that's already considered all-time great, but I promise you it does. I'm looking at your um, the, the honorable mention section, if you guys like. I think that's 
probably one of my more enjoyable sections of the book uh but when you get the honorable mentions and then you compare it to like the top five like what were some of your toughest omissions because i'm staring at two that are on the same page right now and and i appreciate yeah. and i appreciate the um the the reference um uh, to <laughs> to myself in the book uh, that went unnamed <laughs> um man let's see I think that the modern stuff really wasn't that difficult of a choice because uh, unless I felt profoundly confident that it was going to age well, um, I didn't feel like anything over the last few years would really um, would really need to be given a whole lot further a look for this particular version of this book you know five years down the road maybe something different but backing it up um gosh i'm trying to think i think sting versus the nwo jumps out um only honorable mention ladies and gentlemen the real and the reason is is because that i just there was never there's never uh, this this is talking about stories and matches and rivalries together so it's not just matches there's, but they, but certainly the rankings were built around the finest example of that story, that being a match from within the confines of a story or a rivalry. That's what boosted your profile the most. So I wasn't judging something like Triple H and Foley's King of the Ring final against <laughs> an all-time great. I took the best of their rivalry, the, the, the street fight, and put that against scrutiny. So... Uh, but Sting and, and Ho- Sting and Hogan, Sting versus the NWO didn't have that. It was a tremendous story, but it ended with a wet fart. And that was yeah. something that was absolutely positively. And I had a conversation with Rich about this maybe a year ago. I was like, man. And I actually, one of the guys from LOP Radio who did a long, long series about WCW history and watched everything back about Sting. to put together a podcast. Yeah, it was... Uh, you know, it was, I talked to those guys about it, and they said it has to be in there. And Rich said it has to be in there, speaking about the top 100. And I felt for the longest time I just didn't feel the same. And, and I went back and I watched some of the best of it, and the TV was brilliant. But the fact that it ended so poorly and that yeah. I've talked to so many fans over the year that says that's when my WCW fandom started to die is when you know they had the perfect ending. All they had to do was – I mean, the match could have sucked, and all they had to do was get the ending right. But they didn't get the ending right. Yeah. So that was probably the one that stood out to me most. That was the hardest to cut just because I knew there would be a lot of people who read the book. Not not, not necessarily from my perspective, but I knew there would be a lot of people who read the book who would go, God, that should have been in the top 100. But um, outside of that, I'm trying to think if there was any other matches from the honorable mention that really um, – outside of HBK and Mankind, I mean, those were two – definitely that that stood out to me that i would have felt uh for one reason or another should have been in the top 100 but didn't end up in the top 100 was there one that stood out to you i'm curious what's the what's the one on the page that you're looking at well i hold on i'm pretty sure i know two of them one is because it's nxt and the other one's because of the placements of the cards and the pay-per-views that these things were held at yeah that, that I, I feel absolutely held it back. So go ahead, Rich. I'm pretty sure I know exactly what you're talking about. Tommaso Ciampa versus Johnny Gargano and the Usos versus the New Day. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah um, and here's the reason. Here's the thing about NXT. You know, NXT. If you include NXT, then you've got a lot more to add to this yeah. book. You know, yeah. That that ends up taking the place of things that are historic. That you know, when I started this whole process, if you include NXT, you're taking out something like Harley Race and Ric Flair in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you're taking out Guerrero and Brock Lesnar. You're you know, you're potentially pushing Bret Hart and Roddy Piper to the curb to make room for things like DIY versus the revival. Which yeah. absolutely before I added I basically what I did is I took what I felt was the best representative from NXT of of this is what the conversation is needs it? to be and, and what <laughs> What Rich is referencing is that the last entry of the honorable mentions basically brings into focus that at some point, I didn't think the time was now, right? but at some point we're going to have to rectify the impact that NXT has had on the WWE brand and, and bring them into the conversation. Once we do, this is a different book. 
yeah. you know, and that's that's really why I kept it out is because I basically I, I had the bulk of this book written in its original form by the end of 2016. And at the end of 2016 is really when you start to, to see things like DIY and the revival and think to yourself, all right, if I'm going to include let's just say I include one standard tag team match in the top 100, that's the best representative of tag team wrestling ever undeniably that shoots right to the top of the list of what you've got to consider if it's not already at the top of the list but to me at the time it did not make sense to include nxt in the discussion so that was a discuss i mean that was a that was a a choice made roughly two years ago because i knew all right this is getting into the time where you have to write this book the research has been done now we're writing the book and revising everything not doing all the research in its initial phase so it was a tough choice yeah but gargano and champa is absolutely if you put that in here then you, you that changes the conversation and in a lot of ways i mean because then you're opening up a, a really wide variety of things that could be included as for the usos in the new day it was just a simple matter of i wanted to see as i wrote i mean i wrote what what nothing's changed what i read what i wrote at the very end of 2017 when i wrote that little 150 word blurb about their rivalries i will put them in the top 100 someday if tag team wrestling doesn't die in 2018 well so um you know i and that to me that was going to be a big part of its legacy is it was an incredible series of tag team matches but what comes next for all all involved and what's come next for all involved is a big pile of you know what nothing so so just just based on that now that you, you brought it to that point is the point i wanted to actually get to how much I guess now the current stuff, because of where we are creatively, um, how much of their decision-making do you have to take into account, um, or did you even take into account when you're looking at uh, certain feuds in particular? Like, for example, we were talking about the Usos and New Day. They had, at worst, the second-best match at SummerSlam last year, but but they put it on the pre-show because reasons. Or, you know, or certain other things that happened, like... Are we still have? I mean, let's say you were to do this book, another version of this book in the future. Would you have to then start taking into account for the current stuff, you know, decisions that were made that were not smart that hampered where this where the grade would have been? Would you have to start bringing stuff on a curve, or is it just you know it is what it is, and that's their fault? <laughs> you know what? I don't. I don't think in the case of that match at SummerSlam, as for instance. I mean, I don't think that you can that you can necessarily say definitively anything besides the fact that it was on the pre-show you know the, and the fact that that the prestige of the pre-show is a lot lower than the prestige of SummerSlam right is something to consider I don't know that you can take into account WWE being uh, quite dumb about certain things like that in this day and age but you may have to I don't know I mean I'm at a point right now where I look at the way WWE functions in 2017 for the most part and, and through 2018 to present day, having studied the WrestleMania era top to bottom, this these last two years are unlike anything I've ever seen. Um, the consistency of the lousy decisions is 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 baffling. But I don't know. I mean, because there another another section to consider of the book that was heavily featured. I mean, some of the some of the greatest rivalries ever took place during the much maligned new generation. So, and that was a time where people would, I think, if if the same sort of uh, of scrutiny we put on the product today existed then, I mean, it would have been unbelievable the amount of 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 crazy critiques that we could have put on the product back then. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that's a great question, James. I just don't know that there's any sort of definitive answer to it. I mean, like, y'all got Mabel main event out here? This company's done. Like, <laughs> to, to be fair, right, I saw, a, I think it was King of the Ring or SummerSlam 93 when they were in Chicago. And they were doing the King, and they were doing, you know, the Men on a Mission thing with, with, with Mo or whatever else. And Mo was rapping when they came out there. He had... They had Chicago rocking. Like, I don't know. 
they were losing it for these for these dudes I think coming that's out SummerSlam rapping. 94. And, but you know, obviously it's King Mangbull and you know that's that's a terrible decision. But like I could kind of see where this is like I remember this two years ago, so I'm going to you know yeah. But nah, Mabel versus Diesel, mm-mm, two thumbs down. So um, Chad, one thing I, I oh, would okay. like to say about the the whole modern part. Um, and this goes back to something Rich mentioned earlier that I didn't get a chance or I didn't actually respond to was the did I stick to the formula to a T? Uh, the the modern aspect of some of these matches did make me pause. There were certain matches that actually scored higher than where they're ranked, and, and a lot of that is simply because of issues like with Cena versus Styles as a great example. Back at the time when the whole... I've, I've come to label this as the epic match, the, the match that's just t- full of tons of false finishes and near falls to, to derive the bulk of its drama. Back at the time that I would say one of the first of those to the extent that we've come to associate with that expression of the epic match, Shawn Michaels and Undertaker, the first one, I mean, when we first saw that, there just wasn't anything like that. I mean, there were matches where there were a lot of finisher kickouts, but it was so rare that so much of an epic performance was built by false finish. By the time we get to Styles and Cena, we've seen roughly two straight years of that being almost the standard instead of the exception. And to me, that's something that has to be taken into account because, yes, you're right, James. Those are two bona fide classics. And we talk about looking at intangibles, like when we talk about basketball players. And, you know, you look at, I can't remember who it was that you, that we, when we last talked about the NBA, you put under the, the, the proverbial microscope to do the old Bill Simmons breakdown, where it's like this many years as top five, this many years as top 10, this many all stars, this many titles, et cetera. Probably but Durant. You, probably Durant. It, it, that's who it was. If you do that for Styles and Cena, then all of a sudden, I mean, you look at that as like top 10 at the Rumble, top 10 all time at SummerSlam. You look at it like that match of the year, 2017, top five match at a, at a bare minimum, 2016. Then you look at it like, wow, I mean, that's that's going to be tough to beat. But is something like Styles and Cena from, from Royal Rumble 2017, five years from now, is that going to hold up the same way? that like Brett and Owen has always held up from WrestleMania 10 because Brett and Owen at WrestleMania 10 is not derived from false finish going crazy. It's, it's derived from strength of character. It's derived from little pieces of what they took from their rivalry building up to that point. That's what made that special. Will styles and Cena be able to say the same? That's the kind of question that I think is interesting to look at when you're trying to decide all right, does Styles and Cena, just on its resume alone and the fact that it was so heavily lauded a year ago, does that put it realistically in the top 30? I want it, I want it to prove it. I want it to prove it over the next five years. I want to be able to watch that match in five years, put it up against something like... Um, put it up against something like... Uh, let's see. Can't even think of nothing, huh? <laughs> well, like Shield, well, like Shield and the Wyatts. I mean, I, if you ask me to choose right now between the Shield and the Wyatts and Styles and Cena, ten out of ten times I would choose the Shield and the Wyatts because it's a story that flows incredibly well. It's the it's the difference between watching a popcorn action flick to me and watching a deep psychological drama. Yeah, that's actually a really good comparison because those were both feuds that were just on fire that we only really had like. We only had a short amount with, but like that moment that we had with it, like we'll cherish it forever because those are like stars probably aren't going to line for us to get all of those, you know, those elements all together again for even like a second stint. It's just because it's too much time gone and people are in different directions and somebody's out in Hollywood. Another one guy is like, you know, they're who knows what they're doing with his career right now. But yeah. (laughs) What were your uh, favorite chapters to write, Chad? Like from a personal standpoint. Favorite chapters to write. Um, let's see. I really enjoyed writing the chapter on the first Money in the Bank match, um, which I, I just I, I thought pairing down the elements to what shaped its ranking, and it has a high ranking. 
what I thought that was a lot of fun. I, I remember I was sitting in a coffee shop that I like to write at, writing that chapter, and just midway through it, thinking, "This is this is a damn good chapter. This is going to work out really well." Uh, Brett and Owen was a great one to write. Chris Jericho and Shawn Michaels was a great one to write. Stone Cold Steve Austin and Bret Hart was was a great one to write, and it was also one of the more challenging ones to write because there was so much. I felt like I mean I basically. I had a word limit I wanted to stick to roughly for the vast majority of the book, but when we got down to like the top ten, I, I let no limit. a little bit. <laughs> no limits. And, and Stone Cold and Bret Hart, to me, there were so many elements of what made that great. So, And I wanted yeah. to touch on all of that. Whereas in, if, that, if, if Stone Cold and, and Bret had not been a top ten chapter, if it had taken place in the 50s, then I would have had to basically – edit down the vast majority of, of what I wanted to write at full length into like a 1200 word column and so I liked that freedom at that chap at that point in the book of being able to just let loose and, and write until I couldn't write anymore and then go back and I remember I, I, that was that was a one take chapter yeah. Stone Cold and Brett I wrote out all of that went back and read it said there's not a damn thing I want to change about that <laughs> <laughs> for Print. me, that that would have been my number one because I felt like you know for what it was to WWE was the difference between you know number one, which I won't say. Um, you guys can probably figure it Thank out. You. <laughs> um, so like uh, I thought, you know, from a strictly like a wrestling rivalry, like number two, it had much in its effect on WWE. I thought it would just blew everything out of the water as compared to number one, which was pretty much, it set the stage for wrestling in a sense. So like, and what it would, you know, uh, become in the years following it, it, but for a rivalry between this guy versus this guy, I don't think there's anything ever better than Bret Hart versus Austin, especially where those guys were in their careers. What happened in the fallout to uh, the winner and the loser? They, they were never the same again, like either of them. And it was like, <laughs> it was nuts. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's um, I will say this very, very clearly. And I think I actually, I think I wrote this in the book. I watched Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart from WrestleMania 13. There was one stretch where I watched it like 10 weeks in a row. And it never got old. <laughs> it was absolutely like the whole package like the whole from the video package where that old that you know the old school guy was like um we've watched as our heroes <laughs> you know that that old that, that old yes that, that whole thing got todd pentengill doing the voiceover for the 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 pre-match video uh hype thing and just that whole the, the entire presentation i watched it over and over and over and over again and i just i never got old it really never got old. So, I mean, if it was, if this was a book based on one match, match to match, and that's it, it would have been number one. I think at the end of the day, it would have been hard for me not to choose that. I got a question so submitted just, from um, Nicholas Guerrero. What's up, Nicholas? He said, what's next on the horizon now that this book is completed? I have no idea. That might be the last book I ever write. It's uh, I don't know. I don't I don't know what else to write about at this point. I mean, I figure, you know, I was on a I was on a trip to Chicago when I sat down. Um, I was at a seminar. I was actually at a professional seminar and uh, on my my flight got canceled and ended up having to stay at a hotel until I could catch a flight the next morning. And that night I brainstormed, if I was going to do another book, what would I do? And it took five seconds for this one to come into my head. Um, I've been wondering what I'm going to do after this for a while. I've got nothing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's like, it's like, enjoy this. Like, like that's like yeah. the, the thing, like when somebody like wins the award for a modern masterpiece. All right, what's next? Well, I don't know. This is this. This is next. <laughs> I promote this book. I rewrite this book. I basically do everything with this book like because this is the one this is the baby essentially um drop the mic and walk off into the sunset right right um it, do you want like each of your books to kind of stand on their own or were you like intentionally trying to build like a body of work with connections between each book or just the last two in particular i certainly think that this one should stand on its own 
uh, after, you know, obviously, obviously the, the WrestleMania era has been a phrase I've used uh, a, a million times over the last six years. Um, so I, I like that, you know, obviously that from a branding standpoint, that connection is, is great. And I think that, you know, if you, if you end up loving this book, then I think you'll really enjoy the first book that I wrote. Cause I mean, it basically, I think that there's two great questions for wrestling historians, fans to discuss. One is who's the greatest wrestler. And the other is what's the greatest wrestling match. So I think that that, quite frankly, those are the two questions that logically have to be asked. So, I mean, I guess the two books do go sort of hand in hand in that regard. But uh, this one more than the other one, I think, should stand on its own. Awesome, man. Uh, James, do you have anything else to add on that? Uh, Yeah, I got a quick question. So... Um, you know, Chad, I listen to your I listen to your podcast um, almost almost religiously, almost weekly, um, and because I because I find you to be a great reference and also something somebody as uh, almost like a as, as obviously an authority on on, on pro wrestling. Like, I, I mean, obviously, I you know we talk every so often, and I, and you know I, I I we we know each other as colleagues, or whatever. But like, I I do listen to your podcast as if you're like you're Melsa or anyone else I listen to. Thank you. Um, so. And I think I said, and I think I actually said that when you sent me the advance of the book, and then like you didn't respond, like you didn't even take it as a compliment. You're just like, okay, he's being gushy, so I'm not even going to respond to it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's besides the point. So, um, I remember a po- I remember a podcast maybe in the last three four months about you talking about um, the Miz and your your new re- and how you had to reevaluate him and move him up the list for um, historically as far as his legacy in the WrestleMania era. Um, I forgot what exactly where the where you moved him to. Can you, do you remember where you um, put him? I think at this point it's realistic to keep him right tucked inside the the. It, it, in in my first book, I basically have three tiers: the first tier, the second tier, and the third tier. And I think right. he's right at the top of the of the second tier at this point. That it was that that's where I would put him. That you could make a case that he even belongs in the first tier, but that I think for me, mentally. Um, if I'm comparing him to someone like Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, I still put Ted DiBiase a good bit ahead of him. So, um, so yeah, I look at Miz as like a, a top tier, top second tier guy. Okay. Um, so I don't. I mean, me and Rich, we and him kind of uh, butted heads about um, about Miz over the over the like year past year year and a half. So about his standing as far as um as far as Intercontinental title goes. And uh, I, and I looked through the book and I noticed that like Miz isn't in it. Like is is it? So I'm trying to get, I'm trying to figure out like what in your mind what would be Miz's best feud to date? I think his best feud to date is that 2016 feud with Ziggler. Um, I think that certainly, from a historic standpoint, there's nothing that he's done that is from a from a rivalry standpoint there's nothing he's done that's better i think that rollins match he had a few months ago at backlash might be the best match he's ever been involved in Mm -hmm. um but you know and and i if you go back and you look at that feud against some of the best of 2016 um it, 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 it is it is from the standpoint of i look back on it fondly but it was not in terms of the way that it scored. So it did not score high enough for it to work its way into consideration. But everything else, but I mean, that's the best thing he's ever done. Um, most of what he has done that has, that belongs in a historic discussion, I think has happened over the past two years. And there just wasn't a whole lot of Miz activity. I don't even know that I evaluated one single Miz match beyond 2016. Um, and I haven't taken 2018 really into account yet. So, um, but you're right. I didn't. I hadn't thought of that. But he's not included in this book. That's correct. Yeah, I'm just being petty. I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all it is. No, but it's but it's a serious question because you know, a lot of this book when I go through it, so many of these so many of these ma- matches, whether it's uh, Mysterio and Jericho or it's 
or you know, or it's Benoit or somebody's Benoit card. These are over. These are May card feuds over the May card titles, and you know, it's kind of, you know, we all. It's almost like a nostalgic thing where we all talk about how much the Intercontinental title used to mean, and it did mean something compared to our childhood, compared to where it is now. But part of that is the role, the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia, but. You see Miz as a guy and somebody that should be, you know, work, look, viewed as given the, the quality of work he's done over the last, you know, roughly or since the brand split as somebody that should be considered as somebody that is a top guy based on the quality of work he's put forth um, since that time. And yet you look at it and you're just like, he's been around for a while. He's vastly improved in the ring compared to even, say, three years ago. Um they're given the opportunity to do what he does best more often, which is talk and also, you know, be somebody that can actually help facilitate to get other people um, where they need to go and they're fused with the Miz TV thing. But yet, when it comes down, like when you look, it's like there's just something, there's the ring part in that actually getting the fuse over. Like he started, he's a lot better than he was years ago, but like it's still something to be, be desired as far as like adding on to that. And like, you know, you're kind of worried like, He's, you know, he's he's gotten to this point where everything's all working together for him. Like he's kind of in his apex. You wonder, you know, given where we are with going back into where we are creatively overall. Like, can he actually get to? Can he actually finish it off and get there? And, and like, you know, I just we're just at a point where like I just don't have the. I don't know. Like it's, it's I you think, know, stay tuned. But I think, I think it's the case with Miz, and this kind of takes it back to Chad's second book, that he might be like the New Age Outlaws of singles wrestlers. Because if you think about it, the New Age Outlaws don't really have like a rival to really hold up against them. And the only thing they really mm-hmm. got as a big uh, type of thing was when they got to fight the Rock and Sock Connection. Like there wasn't, they were like a great team without like relatively. And then in this case, New Age Outlaws not having the opponents is Miz not getting like those creative outlets essentially. Gotcha. Okay. Sure. And I think I think in in terms of comparing some of Miz's best work in the mid card, specifically talking about this book, some of the things that a Mysterio Jericho had working for them, and you know Jericho Benoit using that as another good example from the mid card. Uh, Eddie Guerrero versus Rey Mysterio from Halloween Havoc 97 is all of those types of matches they had incredible innovation working in their favor things we hadn't seen before um, things that made them stand out against their peers not just from their year but historically as well Um, Miz versus Ziggler didn't have that was it great yes was it in depth was it fun television was it something that made you feel Yes, all it had all of those things. From a mid-card position to compare that against something that was on a grander scale, on a bigger stage, in a bigger position, it didn't hold up very well. And the same, I mean, what we'll see about this whole Miz-Rollins match, I mean, I could very easily see that holding up incredibly well. And it may end up having the advantage of coming from a year where there wasn't a whole hell, hell, hell a whole hell of a lot else to compete against so there are, i mean there are elements like that to consider but i mean it's yeah i mean the, the miz has got to do the basic thing that miz has got to do i think to start pushing his name up the historical ladder is he's got to have the same quality of matches that he had with Dolph Ziggler in 2016 and that he had with Seth Rollins in the backlash 18 opener toward the main event if he does that then it's i mean he's a first tier guy there's no question um but that's what he's got to do he's got to do that when the spotlight's greater i guess you could say because in his spotlight situations you know you put him you ask what's he done at places like royal rumble wrestlemania SummerSlam, nothing you know wrestlemania he's in mixed tag team i mean he had a great triple threat this year but i mean it you know, let's put a rivalry behind it. Let's put him on a grand stage and see how he responds. I'm assuming he would respond well. I just don't know that they'll give him the chance because, again, this is an era in which nothing really makes any freaking sense compared to the way it used to. It doesn't follow the same criteria that it did for 35 years. It's totally, in and of itself, a completely different period in wrestling history in terms of the way the product functions. There's no roster positioning. You never know anything logical step by step who's going to go where and why. You know, you can get to a level of being certain to being over and you don't know that that's going to translate to anything. 
I mean, it's just uh, it's a crapshoot now. You know, it's a total crapshoot. Oh man, I, I I think that's a great place to leave it, guys. Um, so Chad, let let everybody know where they can pre-order the book if they haven't done it, whether digitally or the uh, soft cover. Do you have a hard cover available yet? The uh, the print version is the is the only one that's out right now. Okay. The the, the, the print version that you guys got at Advanced Reader Copies. That's um, you know that's the that's the only version that's out right now. That's the version that comes out on Wednesday, August first. So. You know, there's going to be uh, there's going to be plenty of, of places where you can order it. You can pretty much just Google it by the time that you by the, by the time you listen to this, and you should be able to order it at that point. But otherwise, you know, if you follow, I'll you know I'll send a link for for Rich to include for this podcast. There will be one in mine. There will be press releases released on LOP. There's going to be a little thing that just allows you to just click straight from a marker on the Lords of Pain.net homepage. You can go straight to it from there. The, my Facebook page for the book, the facebook.com slash the WrestleMania era or WrestleMania era um, without the, the uh, <laughs> there will be a link there too. So you can, um, you know, you can purchase it in any of those different ways. They'll take you straight to the link where you can get it. But um, your, your options will be vast. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you as always, Chad. Um, if for yeah no problem man uh, for everybody checking this out make sure you check out the rest of the shows on the social suplex podcast network the outsider's edge with Rance and Carl I believe uh, Chad will be making an appearance over there as well uh, coming up soon uh, the Ricky and Clyde wrestling show uh, keeping it strong style for all your uh, needs for New Japan pro wrestling especially with the G1 going on you don't want to miss it uh, those guys will keep you up to speed and also grown men watch this shit with Chris Bryan and Jeremy Tate talking about everything in the world of independent pro wrestling uh, uh, they just did a show where they were talking about Matt Riddle and um, a bunch of other stuff going on. So and with PWG and Bola, if you're a fan of all that stuff, they those guys will be the premier source for that. So uh, for James, this is Rich, and we are out of here. Peace. Thank you for listening to One Nation Radio. We'll see you next time. Yeah.